Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Mark Hammond. He's the founder and CEO of Bonsai, a startup at the forefront of developing AI systems in the industrial settings. While many articles have been written about developments in computer vision, speech recognition, and self-driving cars, I'm particularly excited about near-term applications of AI to manufacturing, robotics, and industrial automation. In a recent post, I outlined practical applications of reinforcement learning, a type of machine learning now being used in many AI systems. As researchers explore new approaches for solving reinforcement learning problems, I expect many of the first applications to be in industrial automation. I hope you enjoy this episode. Mark Hammond, co-founder and CEO of Bonsai. Welcome to The Data Show. Thank you for having me. So let's start by introducing you to our audience. And uh, I'm looking at your uh, uh, LinkedIn profile. Uh, So going way back uh, to your undergrad days at Caltech, I noticed that uh, one of the areas you studied was neural systems. And of course, this was during one of the famous AI winters, right? Correct, correct. So So you've been in this area in many ways for a long time. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was, uh, the late 90s was an absolutely fantastic time to work at Microsoft, which is where I, I got the start for my career, and an absolutely terrible time to be in AI just because of the AI winter. But, uh, but we all soldiered on, and, and here we are today. So one of the things, actually, that is interesting is that uh, so you've co-founded a few startups, but along the way, somehow you ended up as an, and I'm trying to figure this out, as an intern at Numenta. Yes, yes, I was I was uh, one of the world's oldest interns at one point. That was fun. <laughs> so, so that was because you were just interested in what they were doing. Yeah. So, in large part, I was looking to build a startup that was going to be utilizing their technology. And given all of the work that I had done to date uh, in the field and professionally, uh, we agreed that a good way to make that happen was if I were to work with them on the core algorithms and their core platform uh, for a period of time uh, ahead of spinning out a, a dependent startup. So that's that's how that internship started. So in essence, you were some sort of entrepreneur in residence. Yeah, you can. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, actually. What was your previous startup uh, job compass and job compass? And uh, what was the what was that also using machine learning? So actually, that was based on a positive applied positive psychology. So it still does have a a base in touching in on on human psychology and neuroscience, but it was less based purely on machine learning and more on applying the theoretical groundwork from uh, from Dr. Martin Seligman and others in the field. And so, at some point, you and your co-founder decided to start Bonsai. So I I guess. Uh, Two questions here. Uh, what is Bonsai and uh, what uh, prompted you to start this company? Yeah, excellent. So Bonsai as a company is a re- about enabling 
subject matter experts and others who are not necessarily machine learning practitioners or data scientists to utilize all this technology in building out effective solutions. And that actually ties directly into the genesis of the company. Um, having worked in computation and neural systems as a field for, for a long time and professionally at places like Microsoft as well as myriad startups, um, the my view had, had always been, as is the case with many others, really focused on those core AI algorithms and machine learning algorithms and how do you build a better, faster algorithm. And... Uh, there was there was one day where I had the apocryphal moment, except that it, it actually happened this way. I'm walking on the beach, and uh, and I, I'm sitting there asking myself uh, a thought experiment, and it was very simple. It was everyone is so focused on making better, faster learning algorithms. What do we do when we have it? Well, let's just suppose that someone cracks the nut. Maybe it is Numenta. Maybe it comes out of academia or a, a one of the giant technology companies. But but just suppose for a second that someone has it. You now have an algorithm that can learn as well as or better than humans. What? How do we use that? How do we apply that in a predictable, scalable, repeatable way towards the objectives that we want to apply it towards? And I thought about that for a while. And it's one of these things where the the answer is obvious in, in hindsight, but until you sit down and really chew on it, it, it doesn't jump out at you. Uh, and it's that by design, if you're building a learning system, if you want to program it, you have to teach it. Machine teaching and machine learning are necessary complements to one another. You need both. And by and for the large part, most of what comprises machine teaching these days consists of giant labeled data sets, right? Well, the big data revolution and being able to apply a lot of machine learning algorithms against these big data sets. But that's not really how people learn most effectively. I make the intuitive analogy that it's like me taking my five-year-old son out to the backyard because I want to teach him how to hit a ball and throwing fastballs at him. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. He's five years old. Why would I do that to him? It's just mean. Uh, maybe if I did it a million times, he might figure it out eventually. Uh, and this is the, goes to the analogy to, to the big data sets. Um, but there are more effective ways to teach that. Uh, there's an entire art and science for what it means to teach something effectively. So I'm going to take my son out. I'm going to set a wiffle ball on a tee, and I'm going to let him practice. And when he gets good at that, I'm going to set the tee to pop the ball in the air. And when he gets good at that, I'm going to throw underhand him from close range, et cetera, et cetera. There's a natural phasing for defining the core concepts he needs to learn, for breaking out a sequence of progressively more difficult lessons to, for him to acquire those skills, et cetera. The art and science of teaching had been lost. And when I had this insight that you need both, you need machine teaching and machine learning, it dawned on me that this was the core abstraction that was going to make it possible for us to start applying all of this stuff more broadly across all the myriad use cases that we see in the real world uh, without having to turn all of the people who are looking to use it into experts in machine learning and data science. So, so machine teaching as the necessary complement to machine learning is what uh, sparks the creation of Bonsai as a company and, and the products that we, we create. And it's what enabled me to realize what Bonsai is as a mission and a vision, which is to enable uh, your subject matter experts, think a, a chemical engineer or a mechanical engineer, someone who is very well versed in whatever their domain is, but not necessarily in, in machine learning or, or data science and enabling them to take that expertise and use it as the foundation for describing what to teach and then automating the underlying pieces for how you can actually effectively learn that. So 
that's uh, that's how that's how bonsai came into being. I guess fairly or unfairly, I think of you as a company that uses a lot of reinforcement learning. Is that that's accurate? totally yeah, that's totally fair, totally accurate. And actually, as you were talking there, and uh, you were describing kind of the uh, genesis of bonsai, it dawned on me that uh, one of the areas actually where uh, uh, quote unquote AI technologies uh, can be applied by companies in short order is to automate certain tasks, right? So in particular, I guess, one can think of, let's say, low-skilled tasks that occupy the time of high-skilled workers, mm-hmm. right? So those are automatable. And But on the other hand, uh, on the other hand, as you were talking, right, so you were, you were describing domain experts, describing uh, something that they're doing that may actually be high-skilled, but still automatable. So is that kind of the mission of Bonsai is to do to help people automate some of these more repetitive tasks? Well, the mission broadly is, is as I described, to, to enable people to build whatever kind of application they're after. But our specific focus right now is very much along the lines you mentioned. So we focus primarily on industrial control and uh, optimization. So enabling the big giant companies, the likes of uh, Siemens et al., to take a lot of these tasks that currently require uh, expert human operators to perform, but again, are fairly repetitive and and, uh, not really where they're adding the most value and being able to start to automate a lot of those things. So that's on the control side. And then on the optimization side, it's actually enabling solving problems that are currently intractable. So uh, if you think about a power plant, so you have a wind-based power plant, uh, it's not enough to just control uh, a wind turbine, right? So you can learn the control behavior or have a, a even a classical controller driving that wind turbine. But every turbine, by virtue of being in the flow of the wind, is altering the trajectory of that wind through the rest of the farm. And so if you want to optimize the output from the entire wind farm, you have to account for that. You have to take into account that if I let the uh, wind turbine that is the most front-facing against the wind point to point it directly at the wind and let it go full tilt, that's not necessarily going to give you the ideal maximum output you could have gotten from that wind flow. It might be better to have it off angle. It might be better to break it. So taking all of these things into account and optimizing that across the entire wind farm proves to be a very difficult problem. But it's also one where machine learning technologies and techniques like reinforcement learning are very well suited and very well applicable. And it's also an area where the people who are working on these problems have a tremendous amount of expertise. They know a lot about what it takes and what's involved and what the trade-offs are. And so providing a mechanism to enable them to teach that and then reap the benefits on the other side from having a system that can properly optimize across the various concerns uh, is, is a huge value add. So it's not just replacing current manual work, there is certainly an element of that. And we have customers who are, are doing those kinds of things. Uh, but it's also enabling new kinds of fun- functionality, whether it be in robotics or otherwise, as well as optimizing things that currently prove to be very, very difficult to do so, even with sophisticated uh, optimization algorithms. So a couple of things about uh, reinforcement learning that uh, I wanted to ask you about is, uh, first, actually, it does require data. Right. So, in fact, it requires a lot of simulated data. Correct. And uh, and so people sometimes mistake it that, oh, yeah, this is easier than uh, supervised learning because uh, you don't need label data. Well, 
you actually need a lot of uh, data to do reinforcement learning well. Secondly, there's been a rash of papers where uh, people are saying, you know, the deep reinforcement learning results that you've been reading, they are actually hard to reproduce. Yes, you yes. Know, the air, yeah. You know, if you alter the random seed, the error bars just uh, change, right? So actually, as you, you were talking about control and optimal control, and I think one of the areas that actually people sometimes underappreciate is that there's these disciplines like uh, control theory, where they've had a lot of success. And, I mean, they have uh, technologies that keep planes afloat and they never crash, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's probably a mixture of things that will get deployed, right? So it's not just the things that people constantly read about, like deep learning and deep reinforcement learning. Yes, absolutely. And and certainly classical controllers will always have a role to play. If you can use a PID controller or you can craft a specific control policy in a classic way that achieves the objectives that you're after, you, you should be doing that, right? That it's not more efficient per se to have a learned policy than to have one that you can very prescriptively codify in, a, in the classical regime. Yeah, yeah. And then also, not only that, they, uh, they are very adept at estimating error. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. So, so the, before they deploy something, they have really well-defined error bars. Correct, correct. And and you can make guarantees that way, which is important. So if you have a, a robotic armature, uh, say you're say you're an ADD or someone like that, and you, you sell robotic armatures, part of the value proposition to your customer is that you're guaranteeing that it will have a certain duty cycle, right? You're going to be able to perform this many actions before you're going to need to service the equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And having those pre-baked controllers helps them make those guarantees. So so yes, you, good predictability, low error, well understood error when it exists, and real good drive towards a lifetime assessment for the value of the equipment that you're buying. These are all things that, that matter in these real world contexts. So when you introduce intelligent controllers, um, you need to be able to start to address those concerns as well. It's, it's not enough to just say, well, Here's my deep learning neural network that I put together, and it's able to do X. And it works uh, most of the time. I just don't have a player estimate on when, on how how well it works. Exactly, exactly. You need to be able to make some guarantees when you when you deal with these real world scenarios. And to the extent that you can ever make absolute guarantees with uh, with neural network systems, you you at least want to have it so that with when uh, the presentation of the environment is consistent. You can you can make some harder guarantees around the performance of the system. It, it does matter in these real world industrial contexts. You gave a great talk at our AI conference in San Francisco this past September, and you outlined kind of the areas where uh, you folks at Bonsai are starting to see use cases, right? So optimization, control, maintenance, and monitoring. So what are the shared characteristics of these use cases? So in a lot of cases, the system that you are working with is undergoing some form of tuning. So this is a lot, we see a lot of this. It might be that you have an HVAC system and you are looking to optimize across the lifetime of the equipment, the comfort of the user and the energy consumption of the device, uh, which is its own complex optimization problem. But you do this by virtue of tuning a bunch of parameters or controlling a bunch of different capabilities amongst on the device. And so 
in many cases, a lot of what our users are, are applying the system towards is not necessarily strict real-time control. So certainly we do that as well. And we put out a paper recently showing dexterous robotic control and manipulation using these kinds of techniques. So you can absolutely do that. And we have customers who do that. But a, a very common thing that we see across a lot of the real world applications is more uh, a tuning characteristic. So so does that mean does that mean kind of the uh, your target space is more constrained? It does to some extent. Um, there are cases where the state space is still incredibly large, and part of the reason they're looking to use this kind of technology is is because of the size of that state space that it's resistant to more classical techniques. But what it does mean is that when you have one of these systems, you you're not necessarily putting it in a condition where if it makes a error, where you do find that error state condition, that it's catastrophic, right? So if you have a, an HVAC system, and uh, it's going to change the set point for the target temperature that the embedded controller is, is already driving towards, it's not the end of the world, right? It, you, you might not get the, the same optimal output that you had before. And you're still relying on that classical controller. So, so it's not a full scale replacement of the existing embedded controller. It's more of an auxiliary augmentation to drive intelligent behavior. So think you have your HVAC system, but now you can go turn on smart eco mode. But instead of smart eco mode being kind of dumb, it, it's actually smarter about things, right? So this is kind of the target. And if you look at the kind of work we're doing with companies like Siemens, uh, which I mentioned earlier, they're using it for automatic calibration of manufacturing equipment, right? So think giant CNC mills. And if you have these systems right now, you want to get them to really high precision tolerance, you know, with sub two micron. So what what is the uh, what is the benchmark? Is it just human experience? Yeah, it's human. It's 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 benchmarking against a human. Uh, so if you have a system like that, and it currently requires a, an expert human operator to come in and perform the task, which in many cases across the use cases we see it does, then the benchmark is the performance of that human. So you you come in. You so have, in, in many ways, that's your training data too. It is. So, it, well, the training data becomes interesting because, again, we have this machine teaching orientation. Um, if you go and you ask that expert machine operator how you would codify what they do, they're going to be at a loss, right? And in many cases, they're going to say, well, this is what we're doing. But at the end of the day, I just have a lot of experience doing it. That's how I know how much to tune everything, which is for anyone who's in the machine learning field, that strikes very strongly of Oh, good. This is a this is a thing machine learning is going to be able to learn. So that's great. But if you ask that same individual, okay, well, if I brought in an apprentice or journeyman operator and you were there to teach them, what would you do? Then they can quite readily tell you because they have to do that all the time. That's that's a normal part of their day to day work. So what we try to do is to capture that essence, what it is they're trying to teach, how they teach it, and we pair that with a set of digital twins or simulations, which you can use as training sources, going back to your, your point about still needing a fair bit of data. Yeah, sim simulation tools and simulation platforms are key to a lot of this, right? That's, that's absolutely correct, because those simulations allow you to effectively, not just uh, more quickly than using the real-world equipment and, and safer and less expensively than using the real-world equipment to drive the training, they also allow you to manufacture black swan events that you want to teach about, right? If you if you need uh, an autonomous vehicle to learn how to effectively make left-hand turns into oncoming traffic, right? You can go drive millions of miles on the road, or you can use a driving simulator 
and set that simulator up so that it's constantly showing you situations where you have to make left-hand turns into oncoming traffic, right? You, you have a, a much greater degree of control for showing things that wouldn't occur frequently in the real world in that simulation environment. And so that actually drives directly into the teaching because that's usually the kinds of things you want to teach about. The, the things that are very common, the systems will learn quite readily. It's the things that are uncommon that you know because you have expertise in the domain that the system is going to need to learn how to deal with and it's going to have need to have intelligent behavior around queuing those up and being able to guide the system's training through that is is super effective so simulations become a very very powerful tool in the arsenal of someone who's building out this kind of system so using. in many ways then if you if you take on a new project if you can get to what you refer to as the digital twin early on that really helps you absolutely and the other thing to note when you're talking about reinforcement learning specifically is when you take this teaching-oriented mindset, uh, having the fidelity level of that digital twin versus the real-world equipment, um, there are trade-offs there. Having one that is a low level of fidelity but runs really fast is actually very advantageous in the beginning because it will let you very quickly navigate through a lot of state space and you'll learn the obvious things not to do and to avoid. And then when you need to refine that and get into, okay, well, now that I know that the part of state space that's fruitful for me to really look at, having a higher fidelity simulation becomes valuable. And then once you get that to a degree of performance that you're happy with, then switching over to the real world physical equipment uh, will get you that last mile. But you can phase it in that way so that you can effectively build these programs, get them run quickly, and then you're not wasting time in the, with the expensive real world equipment. Uh, doing things that would be dangerous or potentially wasting lots of material if it's one of these manufacturing machines because you've already dialed in most of the way to what you're trying to provide intelligent control behavior for and you just need to refine that last bit uh, once you get to the the final step it it goes again back to my analogy with uh, with teaching my son how to hit a ball it's exactly the same in the real world right you you just use instead of using a tee to put a wiffle ball on you actually use a you know, a simulation model uh, that might not be high fidelity of the equipment, but allows you to learn very quickly and then iterate from there until you get to the final real world situation that you want to tackle. So you take one of these expensive equipment that needs to be tuned, that's uh, currently being tuned by a human uh, expert, and uh, you try to come up with a uh, with a, an, an algorithm to automatically tune it, but SDE. Uh, I would imagine the end result is uh, variable, right? So in some cases, you want complete uh, machine automation, but in, in some cases, you want human augmentation. Yes, that's exactly right. Many cases, human in the loop is still the desired outcome. So if you look at a, a supply chain logistics uh, use case, so yes, you, have, you can build a, a fancy discrete event simulation model for that supply chain, and there's simulator packages specifically designed for doing exactly that kind of thing. And then you can have the system learn through interaction what good policies are for managing that supply chain. But at the end of the day, you still want a human operator in the loop. And so explainability actually becomes important in these cases, because if the traditional thing that that human operator would have done differs widely from the recommendation coming from the intelligent trained system, uh, the operator is going to want to understand why. And they're going to want to have something to point back at. So they have an, an audit trail for 
you know, well, given all these concepts that you taught me about, I believe that in taking into account the weather patterns that are going to be over the Rockies and the transit routes that our vehicle fleet has in those areas, that we need to do X instead of Y, they're going to have a much higher degree of confidence in actually executing that than otherwise. But, But yes, in many cases, you still want that human in the loop. You want to augment and provide them with better decision support versus necessarily full automation. But in many cases, you do want full automation. Getting that calibration exercise so that you don't actually need a human at all is... Uh, yeah, is like really a, in, in the HVAC example, I was imagine, right? Yeah. In the HVAC example, it's, it's interesting. HVAC is one of those fun areas where it's, it's really well suited for reinforcement learning because you can continually do online learning in those situations. If you get to a point where you say, well, I want to experiment as part of my machine learning system and and see what happens if I explore instead of exploit the the known good behaviors, I'm going to explore what would happen if I changed the direction of the airflow like this or the rate like this or the set point temperature like this, whatever it happens to be. You can figure out, okay, well, did the human come up and override that behavior? If I use the IR sensors in the device, did the temperature on their skin go down? Like, you know, what, what was the result of the action that I took? And it's not the end of the world if it was something that's suboptimal. It's very different if you're on one of these pieces of manufacturing equipment and you're in the middle of manufacturing a $40,000 aircraft part and the system decides, oh, I wonder what would happen if I did this all of a sudden and then you destroy your part, right? That, that's unacceptable. So there's different characteristics when you look across these real, real world use cases around things that can be learned in real time on the real world behavior and things where you just want purely to exploit and have guarantees around your known behavior. HVAC is one of those fun cases where it's super well suited to constant, continual online learning. uh, And and it works really well in that regard. But typically, you want that to be fully automated. And then when the humans come and override the behavior, that's training data that you're learning from from that. Yeah, rumor has it that actually uh, DeepMind helped uh, Google reduce their HVAC bill uh, in their data centers using yes. uh, using their deep reinforcement learning technology. Yes, yes. In fact, the rumor would go further and say that Google completely recovered the value of the acquisition price by the dollar savings from, from that exercise. The number one costs to Google just in their expenses outside of personnel is electricity. And so cutting back on the power consumption of, of HVAC and data centers is a huge cost savings to them. And, and it's uh, it's very powerful. For us as a company, it's great because they were able to use that to great effect internally. And um, but but that's an internal usage, right? You you, you can't go and buy DeepMind from from uh, from Google and use it to build your system. So for Bonsai, that's fantastic because we are a commercial option. You can actually go and build this in, and that that allows us to work with uh, you know major HVAC manufacturers and, and achieve similar results. By the way, uh, speaking of online learning, uh, the way I explain it to some people the difference between online learning and reinforcement learning is that in in reinforcement learning you have some combination of delayed feedback maybe sparse rewards and actually the most important difference i think is that uh, in reinforcement learning the agent in question usually affects the environment they're interacting with that's right that's exactly right so so in supervised learning you have a labeled data set right really it's if you have some Inputs and some known outputs, those are the labels. Can you learn to map from the inputs to the outputs? And the the inputs and the outputs can be highly varied, right? It could be pictures and labels that there are cats or or dogs or something else, and you want to learn the function to map from them. 
it could be natural language texts and you want to map to sentiment. It could be any number of these kinds of things, but it's a one, it's a direct mapping. You know, given a set of inputs in your training data, what the correct output is. With reinforcement learning, uh, it's exactly as you said, there's delayed information. If I'm, again, if I'm DeepMind and I'm training the system how to play Go, because I'm going to take on, you know, the, the world champions at Go, was the move that you just, what's the right move to make given the current board position? Uh, you know, is someone going to be able to provide a label for that? It's probably not, right? But at the end of the game, you know whether you won or lost. And, and not you, only that, the move you made just altered the game. And the move you made altered the entire state of the of the environment with, with, within which you're operating. And so, so the, uh, the, the way I try to help make this intuitive to people is, again, going back to that car analogy. If you show up at an intersection and you need to make a left-hand turn, and uh, you've been at this intersection before many times, and you've seen this exact array of cars before many times. So the data looks, the input data looks identical to things you've seen before. Um, the evolution of that environment, as you start to take actions in it, will be very different from what you saw before. It's not a one-to-one -one mapping. Every agent is going to act in different ways. Every action you take affects the state of the environment and the actions that all the other agents take. It's a much more dynamic and complex system to solve. And you don't have a function that's telling you, well, this is exactly what you should have done at this moment. You only know at the after the fact whether or not you achieve the desired results. Uh, and so reinforcement learning is, is a, a set of techniques to deal with that scenario. Can I get map a, a reward function backwards in time such that I understand the value of actions that I previously took and can infer what good behavior should have been or good actions that I could have taken would have been uh, and then apply that going forward. So it, it is very, it's very, very different. The way you explained how bonsai came about is uh, very cool. This aha moment that it's not just machine learning, it's machine teaching. Yes. And in particular, the kind of algorithm you're using, reinforcement learning, which is really which is really uh, geared towards this kind of sequential decision making. Yes. Is ideal for teaching. Agreed. It it makes it easier to map for sure. So your your original idea for bonsai was that there's a gap here in that uh, people are focused on machine learning not machine teaching and then it was it was after you made that realization that you looked around for what are what are the right applications and tools. That's correct. The, the approach came first, right? So the insight that led to the company was the, the machine teaching approach uh, so that you could add that level of abstraction in between. And then as we looked around at the state of the market and the kinds of things people were looking to apply all of this technology towards, uh, we were able to identify you know, industrial applications of AI and, and control systems and these optimization problems as a as a ripe part of the market where the supervised techniques uh, were were not working as well as people would hope. And reinforcement learning was a particularly viable approach, but but the market was underserved. And when you go to that market, what they have a wealth of is the subject matter experts who know a lot about these problems they're trying to solve, um, but they're not necessarily experts in machine learning or, or data science. And so they're kind of faced with this trade-off uh, of how they go about thinking about tackling these problems and, and baking AI into their in their businesses. They're no different than any other part of the uh, economy uh, where everyone has realized, you know, AI is important and, and you need to do something with it. 
they they're just that they're the same. They just didn't have a good avenue to to tackle with it. So so as the first kind of killer application area that to focus on that that came into view through the process of building the technology out and exploring how to apply it. This general area of industrial automation, it seems to me that, and I haven't uh, talked to many people in this space, but it seems to me that uh, you don't need to con- do a lot of convincing, right? So in terms of, uh, 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 I have a set of tools that can do the following for you. The u- in other words, the use cases seem to be just fall off. They're there. Use cases are plentiful. That is not a challenge. That is that is true. However, um, the expense associated with making a mistake is the stakes are really a lot higher. Um, so, so actually, there's this. Uh, there was a, a quote from from uh, Harold Kodish and Forbes back uh, back a while back, where he was talking about applying this kind of technology in these real world industrial contexts. And I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna get the exact quote right, but he was saying basically something to the effect of if you want to make a prediction, so just think classic supervised learning, and you're going to make a classification style prediction, and all you're trying to predict is whether or not an engine on an airplane needs to be serviced. You know, is it faulty? Do I need to do I need to service this engine? When it comes to that real world application, that's really expensive. If you have a false positive, that costs you know in excess of two hundred thousand dollars because you have to dispart. Uh, dispatch specialist technicians to deal with this. You, because you're you're servicing this engine on an aircraft, you have to provide loaner engines to those uh, airlines so they can keep up their flight operations. Uh, you know, and if it proves to have been a false positive, you know that that was a that was a two hundred thousand dollar mistake. So the stakes the stakes end up being much higher. So even though there are plentiful uh, use case application areas, they're still very very careful and purposeful and methodical about how they go about validating the systems and building them out. They want to be able to provide those kinds of guarantees I was talking about earlier so that they know that they're not wasting lots of money on uh, something that is going to prove to be incorrect. So you come in, they already have a use case, but then uh, you're coming in with a, you know, quote unquote, black box AI uh, technology that they've read about, but haven't actually used. So what do you need to do to overcome that? Do you is there a lot of education? Is uh, you have to go through a rigorous pilot process? So definitely, pilot pro- pilot uh, programs are, are typical. So people will usually want to get their hands on it and use it and and uh, try to build something out as a proof of concept. Um, that's pretty normal. Uh, that's pretty normal in enterprise software just in general. So by the way, Mark, how do you how do you call yourself? Do you say oh, I have AI to do what you need, or what what how do you what's your label? So we we we're a we're an artificial intelligence development platform. So we are specifically focused on industrial control systems. Uh, and so when we talk to people, we talk about the fact that we can help them build intelligent control systems. So right? did they get scared that it's a black box? No, actually, this is one of the chief selling points. So yes, you're right. If it was a pure black box, they would be worried about it for exactly the reasons you would suspect. But because you're providing a machine teaching program. Uh, you, oh, it's right. the part the part that becomes a black box is the underlying mechanics of how the learning works, but it's done in the context of this machine teaching program you've built, and that becomes explainable and auditable and all the rest of the pieces. Think uh, as an intuitive analogy: if you like to play golf and you're out at the driving range and you're hitting a golf ball and you, you do a particularly good job, and someone says, comes up and says, "Well, well, how? What were you doing? Why was that so good?" 
again, your answer is probably going to fall back on, I just enjoy the game. I practice a lot. You know, like this is what I do. If you were to do the same thing with an expert coach who is teaching you how to do that same task, they're going to talk to you all about the, you know, your slice and various other, I, I'm not a golfer, so I'm going to get this wrong, but all the various facets that go into effectively doing that properly because they are an expert at it and they know how to teach it. And then once you learn that, you're able to explain it as well in that, in that context. Our system is the same. So it stops being a black box because that expert knowledge that, that uh, the existing domain experts you have in your company are imparting as part of that machine teaching program, those become the explainable nature of what it was you were teaching. But just as uh, you know, with my son learning to hit the ball, it doesn't matter that I know how his brain works. It, it does matter that I know how to teach it effectively. And our system is no different. So our assertion is it doesn't really matter so much that you understand the underlying details of the neural network topology that was that the compiler generated on your behalf, as it is that you understand why, what it was that you were trying to teach in the first place and why it's leading to the intelligent behavior that you have requested and, and decided to you know, move to teach. Uh, so so we sh that, that's the level of abstraction in the switch. For our customers, usually when we go in, we analogize it to their use of a database because they've all used databases before. It's something they're very familiar with. And we say, look, do you, do you spend time worrying about the underlying storage engine and when it's electing to rebalance the tree structures that are holding the data? Like It, it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, the database gave you these nice, clean abstractions so that you could focus on the structure of the data and the kinds of questions you want to ask and leave all those details to the database and that what that's the reason you pay for it that's the value it's providing and the same is true for us do you want to spend your time focused on the low level mechanics of how the machine learning algorithms are functioning or do you want to focus on capturing your business's core competency and how you teach that and then being able to use that as the point with which you iterate so it's not there is a black box component to it but it's black box in the same way that the storage engine for a database is a black box where the SQL code that you provided is, is the part that you have control over. Same for us. You the machine teaching program you write, wrote is the part you have control over. And that, that helps a lot because it, it enables people to start to explain what's going on and iteratively refine it and so on. Yeah, because they definitely had a hand in building the resulting system, it sounds like, right? Exactly. It's not, you know, we're not a consulting service. You don't, you don't come to us and we, we provide you a, a an intelligent controller. We we provide you a platform with which you can build your intelligent controller, and we will help educate you on how to write proper machine teaching programs, uh, and we'll even help you in working through a pilot so that you can really feel comfortable with how the technology works and that it's going to solve your use case. But then it's ultimately on the customer to to build it themselves, and and they actually prefer that. That that's their core competency. That's their business. They're not looking to outsource that. That's something they want to fold in house. Now that you've kind of honed in on a few use cases where you've uh, you've gotten success and traction, uh, I'm assuming then there's like pre-built modules for some of these. Yeah. So once you start to see a lot of repeatability in the applications, then yes, you can start to build some additional components uh, that enable acceleration of building out these kinds of solutions and, and you get reusability from that perspective. And then the system, because it is designed again around these con the the structure of teaching a concept uh, and, and breaking that out as to how that works, that concept becomes reusable. It's a software asset, just like any other software asset that your company might have. And so we can start to provide those as a library for 
our customers to use to, to not have to focus on the lowest level componentry. Uh, but then internally within your organization, you can start to build up those concept libraries as well. Uh, and so, yes, it, it, it turns the act of building intelligent systems into a traditional software development exercise. It's just that teaching is the new program. And so one of the things that is a big uh, topic now in machine learning among uh, data scientists is this whole notion of, you know, it's one thing to train a model and build it, but uh, actually the harder part of the life cycle is managing and monitoring it in production. Yeah, yeah. Getting it deployed is a challenge of its own right, for sure. Then what happens when you deploy it to production? Because in many ways, maybe your modeling work begins when you deploy it in production because your model may start degrading. And Yes, yes. Yes. So I'm assuming that you have the same sorts of issues in uh, industrial automation. Yep, those those don't change. In fact, in many cases, they're more pronounced because you have to deal with distributing to devices operating on the edge. So you have, in addition to having just the traditional scaling and deployment issues, you also have distribution issues as, as well. When you work in these industrial contexts, you can't run everything in the cloud all the time, as much as we might like to. Uh, a lot of times it has to run you know, on the controller that's sitting on the physical piece of equipment. So, so you've got, you have those challenges also. Um, but that's, uh, that, that again is something that we, we look to help with. Again, going to our database analogy, one of the, uh, the output of our system runs in the context of the runtime platform. You have an AI engine the same way you have a database engine. Uh, we don't generate a TensorFlow, you know, neural network topology that you're importing in your Python code to execute. Um, it's, it's a full own runtime environment. Right. And so we manage that. Uh, that enables us to tackle these problems you're bringing up. How do you distribute these things? How do you scale them effectively? Uh, if you have lots of concurrent users, can you spin up additional nodes to run those effectively and efficiently? If you have stateful interactions, can you maintain that state across sessions and so on? So we look to handle a lot of that on, on the user's behalf. It is actually very common in most of these environments today that you actually have a dedicated data science team. Uh, or machine learning team, and they will end up designing and building the algorithms. And then once they've gotten it to a functional state, there's an entirely separate team that then converts that into something that can run in the production environment. And to the extent that we can remove that necessity to have that dual process and allow you to build your trained models and then just get them into deployment directly, that's uh, that's a, that's a large value. So in closing, um... Tell me one thing that you're looking forward to in the next 18 months as far as uh, what you what you folks are building. Oh, oh, fantastic. So the the thing that I would say is going to be very exciting for us is the self-service component. So I I know this sounds kind of kind of silly, but right now as you mentioned, you, you know, you have to go through these pilot engagements, you have to uh, help people by with by virtue of, uh, of training them on how to build these programs, et cetera. And we are actively working on getting it to the point where people can just come and sign up and start to play with things on their own and be effective in doing so. So that's kind of the one of the key milestones that we have coming up um, over the course of, of the next day. Uh, so you'll months. definitely need a lot of a great documentation and starter starter kits, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, exactly. Lots of tutorials uh, and, and all the things that go along with that. Uh, we, we're even discussing internally getting competitions spun up um, so that, uh, you know, even if it's on more toy problems, but it's a, it's a, enough to get people aware of the kinds of things that they could do in the approach in, in general, that you could do things, you know, RoboCup style where people are building competitive 
uh, agents uh, to play various games or, or do, do things along those lines together. So yeah, so we, we have a lot of plans along those lines. Um, at the moment, we're definitely very focused on these these industrial applications, but that getting to that self-service uh, and, and enabling even broader adoption of the approach and the technology and the platform, uh, that's something that we're, we're very excited about getting out there. So uh, actually, in closing, one last question. Are you f- folks concentrated only in the U.S. market? Oh, no, no. We definitely have uh, customers uh, internationally. We have several customers in Europe. We have customers in Asia as well. Uh, it's not just the United States. So when you look at the industrial marketplace, um, there's, a, there's a lot of players that are, are not based in the U.S. So we, we work with all of them. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, Industry 4.0 in Europe and Germany and then Made in China 2025. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yep, yep. And, <laughs> and Japan likes to do a lot of work with robotics and, and uh, Korea as well. And so, it's, yeah, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of this. I just multiplied your documentation into God knows how many languages. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> this is a fair point. This is a fair point. We haven't tackled that yet, but that's a fair point. Well, uh Uh, Mark Hammond, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. You can follow Mark Hammond on Twitter at Mark I. Hammond. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. (laughs) 